0: I think what resonates too is i'm not a very hustle person i'm default skeptical of hustle culture because far too many people quit their jobs and then just become workaholics working on their own maxing on income and things like that i ultimately think that's the path to burnout the only path to sustainability on your own path is designing around work that actually brings you alive
1: what's up my name is cj finley and this is the thrive on life podcast I started a brand called Thrive on Life to help other mission-based people, brands, and businesses thrive. Each week, we interview people on topics of business, health, relationships, mindset, and much more to help us thrive in all areas of life. If the messages in this podcast resonate with you, but you're still feeling a little bit stuck in actually implementing these ideas, I'd love to help you on a more personalized level or connect you with somebody that can. So please reach out. Also, if you've got a friend who you know could benefit from hearing this episode, please share the love with them. My goal is always to spread positive impact through the sharing of knowledge, and I would be honored if you could help me achieve this goal. Today's guest is Paul Millard, an independent writer, freelancer, coach, and digital creator who has written online for many years and has built a growing audience of curious humans from around the world. Prior to his current lifestyle, he spent several years working in strategy consulting before deciding to walk away and embrace a pathless path. He is fascinated about how our relationship to work is shifting and how more people can live lives where they can truly thrive. I love this conversation with Paul because he is so well-versed in an area that I have become obsessed with. How can people enjoy the work they do and live a more fulfilling life? I know you will have a lot of takeaways from this episode, and I look forward to hearing about how you are beginning your own pathless path. Please welcome to the show, Paul Millard. What is up Thrive fam, CJ Finley here again with another episode of the Thrive on Life podcast and I'm super excited for today's conversation. We're going to get right into it because I want to get as much awesome information out of my man Paul right here as possible because I know he has a lot of value to bring you here today. But before we get into it, I'm just going to let you kind of give a rundown of where can people find out more about you because I do want to get right into this conversation.
0: Yeah, the best way is a newsletter I've been writing weekly for about four years. Boundless.substack.com is where I am now. I don't know if I'll be there indefinitely, but also just Google my name. I'm the only one with that name on the internet, really. So pretty easy to find. Twitter, my newsletter, you'll find me, and I engage with a lot of
1: people online. Talk about an SEO hack, just having your name be the <laughs> only only name on there, right? Um, first thing we're going to get into today is Paul wrote an amazing book called The Pathless Path, and I recently read it, and it really hit home with a lot of the things that happened in my past. And I think a lot of listeners that follow me and my journey and the thrive journey are going to gain a lot of value from the pathless path. So I wanted to make a lot of the conversation kind of revolve around that. And one of the things that hit home with me in the book was when you talk about a quote where it says, dying is only one thing to be sad about living unhappily is something else. The culture we have built does not make people feel good about themselves we are teaching the wrong things. You have to be strong enough to say if the culture doesn't work, don't buy it. Create your own. So I wanted to start off with what is your interpretation of when they say create your own culture and so why you put that in your book?
0: That quote was from a book, Tuesdays with Maury. And I've read it three or four times. Every time I read it, it makes me cry a little because it's this guy at the end of its life, Maury Schwartz. It's this very famous book. It's read by millions of people, highly recommended to most people. This guy at the end of his life, Maury Schwartz, who finds out he's going to die and he reconnects with one of his former students, Mitch Album, who's now a famous writer now. And Mitch's own transformation aligns with his reconnection with his teacher, who he lost touch with for 10, 15 years when he was chasing his dreams, work, became a workaholic in the becoming a sports journalist and things like that and it's this amazing book because it's this man this teacher that built his life around values that he cares about never quite fit in built his own culture he pulled it off and it's you see the book through more uh, Mitch's eyes of seeing his teacher realizing these things in his own life and the coolest thing about the book is if you go google Mitch album now he's now transformed his life and sort of followed in Maury's path. So I love reading these books about the end of life, about here's what matters. Listen to me. Most people love these books, but then they don't do anything about it. I'm the crazy one that sits there and says, oh, that seems worth aiming at. Now let's go find out what that looks like.
1: What inhibits people from actually doing that? So why is there so few of the gentlemen that you just described in this world? And one of the things that hit home when I read that was he talked about I think it was what was the second gentleman's name that was describing the guy that died Mitch album mitch album he was describing how this man would like dance and and find activities to do rather than sit there and watch t v and it really reminded me of how easy it is to one forget how meaningful little things like that are, so a good instance is. Shout out Scott Simmons. He's the one that helped me put the studio together. We were on a FaceTime right before this because we're going to record a video tomorrow. And he showed me, he was like, dude, I got a Sonos because every time I walk into your house, you have music playing and it just like makes me feel good. And I didn't even notice that because that's just something that I do. And I feel like people don't even realize that those little activities and those little things are an option. And I'd love your perspective on why they don't realize that.
0: One thing I've realized from writing my book, writing about work, writing about my own life transition is that there are far more types of personalities than I could have imagined. And before I wrote my book, I talked to approximately four to 500 people about their relationship to work. And you realize there's this vast span of people. There are the people that are born and just never seem to pay attention to conventional scripts and norms and things like that and just go do crazy stuff. I was not one of those people. <laughs> I paid attention to the norms around me and I fit my life into those norms. So I think what's resonated among people with my book is that I was deep in that path. And it wasn't that I didn't have the courage. I literally didn't even have the idea
1: that I could work on my own. When you, when you say deep, give practical Like how many years, what were you working on? What was your salary so that people can understand?
0: Yeah. So you and I, both industrial engineers and in college, I worked in industrial engineering jobs. I worked at GE and Pratt & Whitney and engine manufacturing and thought I would go and run a factory one day. But every job I worked in, I got antsy and I wanted to move to the next one. So after school, I decided I will go into finance. And then I decided I wanted to try and break into consulting. And I was really uneasy about every job until I got into consulting. And I ended up breaking into one of the top firms in the world, McKinsey & Company, in the strategy consulting space as my second job a year after working at GE in finance. And I wanted that so bad. Every bone in my body needed to be that. Person that worked at these special companies, these places that seemed too good to be true for someone like me. that went to a school like UConn and people told me, oh, you went to the wrong schools. You can't get a job here. So I ended up working at those firms and I lasted in that industry for nine more years. The interesting thing is I actually loved the work. I loved those two years working at McKinsey on strategy consulting. I was surrounded by smart, curious people I was surrounded by managers that cared about me, and it was a culture and environment that invested in people. The thing that was weird immediately upon getting there, though, was that everyone is, was obsessed with the next step. Nobody seemed to live in the present. I was the weirdo that was like, "This is great. Why are we? Why aren't we just happy we're here?" So I always had this restlessness, but I got caught up in chasing those next goals. When people are like, are you going to apply to business school? I'm like, should I be doing that? And everyone around me is applying to these amazing schools and getting in. Uh, So my manager had gone to MIT and she goes, I think you'd have a good shot of getting into MIT. So I'm like, all right, I'll go there. Um, (laughs) And that's kind of when I got lost.
1: Yeah, you're following somebody else's dreams seems like well,
0: well it was it was sort of my dream this is the thing i didn't have any imagination of working on my owners an entrepreneur i had no examples in my life everyone around me all my friends all my family full-time workers who had built their life around continuous jobs and employment for their entire life there was no other model in my head so i was only trying to play the game within that world so i'm just trying to optimize and do the best like I didn't realize then that I had this hunger and drive that was being applied to the dumbest goals in the world. <laughs> and once I went to business school, I thought, oh, I'm not going to go back into consulting. I'm just going to keep moving around. But I didn't come up with any idea of what I wanted to do.
1: I and mean, then- that's that's a pretty high bar, though, because when you say dumbest goals in the world, like I, my mind goes towards like really stupid shit, but... You were still at McKinsey. And like that's silly goals. They're not not the
0: dumbest goals. The thing is, everyone in society will praise you for pursuing those goals. So if you're questioning them, people think you're crazy, but they dismiss you. Then when you walk away, then people think you're actually crazy, Mm -hmm. which is what happened five years later. But yeah, I graduated from business school, ended up at a small consulting firm. The funny thing was, I got rejected by the company I was working for before business school basically because they were evaluating me against all the peers in the business school. And I was just sort of lazy. I wasn't fired up to follow that path. I was kind of just bumbling along. So I worked in that path for five more years. My last job, I was making $150,000 advising CEOs and boards of big companies. I was totally bored by the people I was working with. I didn't aspire to be anyone around me. It was older men who were grumpy, not in shape, and complained a lot. And I was inspired by Maury Schwartz. I kept reading (laughs) that book, but I couldn't figure out. Like, I was stuck without knowing I was stuck, if that makes sense.
1: Let's dial it back. What made you first pick that book up? So this is a very popular
0: book. I don't think it's crazy that I picked it up. I think I read it in college or slightly after. And it was a book I kept returning to for some reason. I think I've just been inspired by older men who are still alive and energized with their life.
1: Define energized. And
0: you know it when you see it, right? You're like somebody is, they're talking to people. They're excited about things in life. They're not saying things like, oh, you're having a kid. Never going to sleep <laughs> again, buddy. <Right?
1: laughs> Dude, we're, how we're many we're times cold. have we, how many times have you heard that? Uh, it's it's sad
0: and it makes me sad. And it's the same kind of talk with work. It's like when you're graduating, welcome to the real world, buddy. It's like there actually are other types of adults
1: who don't. Not on the East Coast. (laughs) (laughs) The, the
0: (laughs) The Northeast has an extra amount of cynicism compared to the rest of the US and I didn't realize, I now realize this after living abroad and being in a place like Austin. Oh, cynicism isn't the default mode of orienting towards life. And I don't thrive in that environment. I totally underestimated how much I needed to be around optimistic people. And I only realized that once I became self-employed and I realized I needed energy to actually do anything I was doing. And I became a lot more conscious and intentional about surrounding myself by those people.
1: There's so many ways that I could go with this. For those that don't know, Paul is also expecting his first child. So when we were laughing about the the people kind of being cynical of we're never going to sleep again, I have the view that it's just seasons. There's seasons to life. Of course. So you just have to be prepared. And it's just like, it reminds me of, I mean, you go back hundreds of years and you're growing crops. It's, you're doing hours and hours and hours of labor before you get to taste the fruit, the veggies, the cream of the crop rise to the top. And I I believe that work and work is very similar to that. So is having a child. It's just like those first eight to 12 weeks is, is going to be a grind, but how do you prepare yourself for that? And then also with, with work, we don't do a good job. I think of teaching people, that there are seasons to life. And one of the things that I've heard you say on other podcasts that I really like that you said this, cause you're not, you're not, you, there's two ways to be cynical. There's cynical of people looking down on the way that we're going. And then we can become cynical of this is the only way, like fuck the corporate path. And I don't know if that was your view, like when you first started, but knowing you now and hearing what you've said, I sympathize with this because I felt like, if I were to quit today, quote unquote quit, yeah, it probably would have looked different. Cause we both, you resigned in 2017 too. Yeah. The world is so fluid now that like so much more accepting. Yeah. It's like, I don't even know if I would have quit. Cause there's more opportunity to have different roles and remote roles and like part-time roles and things like that. I think about this too. If it's my like, job
0: was remote, and I could live in different places I might still be employed which is really cool and I talk to a lot of people yeah. who are in that situation and they they've actually leaned into the opportunities that it gives them now there are a lot of people that are just working remotely and performing office work but other people are are that slight imagination creeping into their brain and they're saying well maybe I can go somewhere for a month
1: so yeah you're you're, you're spot on and one, if you're listening to this, you can do it. Like one of the things that I always lead by here at Thrive is like somebody out there has already done what you're trying to do. Just go find them and talk to them and that'll help a lot. But you mentioned in your book how most people have a narrow lens of what work is. And I have felt this like so much being in the health and wellness space and and the media space because I traded engineering at first for personal training and people including people close to me are like, dude, you're giving up like everything you work for to like train people. And what they couldn't understand was I wasn't training people. I was changing their lives. They literally, when they came to me, they weren't just talking about how do I get abs? How do I look more fit? They were like, I have this problem at work. Like, I don't know what to do about it. I'm having this problem in my relationship. I don't know what to do about it. Like I was their sounding board And I was also helping them feel more confident to show up in their daily lives and conquer the problems that they're having. Why do people narrow into like that? Like for me, they're like, that's not good enough in my world of what I'm viewing as what work actually is.
0: I think it's very simple why people narrow into. So our society has basically narrowed and simplified our view of work as employment in a full-time job. And That's the reality. So the reality is if you want to lean against that, you are going to pay some sort of cost. I say there's a status tax. Both of us have probably paid a status tax, but that is a tax in other people's eyes. And once you figure out how to deal with that, it's uncomfortable, right? When people are disappointed in you and say things to you like, don't you feel like you're wasting your education? It hurts, but you can also learn to deal with that and realize that aiming your life based on other people's opinions of you probably isn't a good long-term strategy. So I can tie this back to what you were saying before. Were you opposed to the corporate world earlier? When I left my job, I wanted to light the corporate world on fire. I was so broken. That- I love this. <laughs> <laughs> I was so broken that I needed to, to like start an internal war against the corporate world. I understand what was happening now. What was happening is that I was scared of going back. And I sort of needed to burn the bridges in, in my head that it wasn't possible. I was scared of becoming the person I felt like I was becoming on the previous path. And that scared the hell out of me. I was going to become that cynical Middle aged man. I saw traces of it. I wasn't really that person. My friends wouldn't say I was that person, but I saw the traces and it scared me. And so when I left, I was like, corporate world sucks, quit your job, all these things. What I didn't anticipate was that when I took a break. So after six months, I had made some money freelancing and I just had this intuition that I needed to not work and not do anything. In that space, I started writing and getting energized by all these things. And it was this awakening that, holy crap, there's a different kind of work, right? And it's enabled me to see that a lot of our default scripts about how we see the world are so anchored in these very dumbed-down versions of employment and work that are really tied to the 20th century industrial economy. Ambition... The way we think of it is like job titles, rising incomes, all this stuff, nonsense. The true ambition, which we've lost track of, is the stuff that lights your heart on fire.
1: Most people think ambition in this, you write about prestige in the book. And I feel like most people tie their ambition to some type of prestige rather than tying their ambition to when they wake up every single day and if you like had a free day, how would you want to spend that day? Like, what are you motivated to do on a free day? And for some people that could just be, I just want to do nothing and walk around the block. Like, cool. But that's where I feel like for me, my ambition used to, and that hit home well is like, I love the definition in the book where it was talking about it, like warps our view of what we actually want. That's what ended me up. Like I played college soccer, It wasn't even my favorite sport, but I went for the prestige of thinking, oh, I can get a scholarship for soccer and then I can get people, I can accomplish these things where people are looking at me and I can get this job for being a scholar athlete, but I didn't even like, I didn't even, I didn't love the sport.
0: Some of that is unavoidable. I think, especially for young men, we just have this desire to prove ourselves. Right. And prestige is basically what are people paying attention to? Things we put prestige on basically mean a lot of people are paying attention to it. Generally, when you don't know what you're doing, aiming in a prestigious direction, I'm like neutral in whether that's good or bad. It's fine, right? A lot of- At least you're aiming. Yeah, a lot of prestigious jobs will enable you to develop skills and aim high, try to do good work, things like that. Strategy consulting was definitely that for me. The problem- is there are no off-ramps. There are no easy off-ramps. And I essentially had to build my own off-ramps and make sense of all this stuff. This is what's injected into my book, is essentially the fumbling around, not knowing what I'm doing, being confused, and then starting to talk to people. This was before the pandemic too, so I'd have all these one-on-one conversations. And everyone would be like, yeah, you're onto something. I feel this too, even if they're in jobs or not on jobs. And I realized there was this hidden conversation of people talking about their relationship to work that was not making it above the surface level. Hushed conversations in back rooms. I shouldn't say I don't like my job. I get paid well, all this. But I'm being verbally abused and it's terrible. I'm gaining weight. It's like, no, you should be saying this. You shouldn't be ashamed of complaining about your experience and wanting more. And what I've realized more recently, a term I coined in the last year, is there's this inspiration deficit. So many young people want to do things that are excellent. They want to do great work. They want to aim high, but they're often trapped in these paths, which guarantee safety and security, at least on the surface, that don't
1: deliver on that. And it's a tragedy. What's up, guys? I'd like to take a second to thank you for tuning into this episode with Paul. I hope you're loving this conversation so far. But before we get back into it, I have an opportunity I want to tell you about. As we all know, life is hard. It can beat you down, have you feeling low, and make it seem like you are alone. I'm here to remind you though, that the most worthwhile journeys, they are not meant to be taken alone. And right now you have the ability to take action and join others, including myself on the mission to make every heartbeat count. Head over to cjfinley.com and sign up for my daily newsletter, where I will be giving you information, impactful stories, tips and tricks, and access to a community who are focused on making an impact above and beyond themselves. You'll also have the perk of exclusive giveaways, potential shoutouts, and possibly even some collaborations. The least that will happen is you will walk away into every day with an extra pep in your step. My promise is that I will always do my best to help you thrive on life. And this newsletter is one of the best ways for me to help you do so. So if you're looking to get to the next level of your life, connect with like-minded individuals and have a daily dose of info that will help you thrive, Sign up for my newsletter at cjfinley.com. Now let's get back to the conversation with Paul Millard. You mentioned fumbling and it got me thinking. You've lived in so many different cities. I'd love for people to understand practically what fumbling looks like because most people don't allow themselves. We're not allowed to fumble at all like in our lives. It just goes from day one, kindergarten, first grade. Like we got to be on this path, college, job and beyond, white picket fence. But fumbling is so vitally important and we do it, I would say before we get to kindergarten, as a kid, you're fumbling. A little child, you're fumbling almost everything. (laughs) We uh, put a plant right near our new couch and it pollinated, like the pollen got on the couch and started staining it. And I was like, well, this is a sign that we're about to have a child. We need to, we need to find some good stain remover because I was like, this is not the last time that there's going to be a stain here. But I giggled when I say that about my child. Why can't we giggle about that uh, yeah. when we're an adult? And I feel like a lot of it is we need more people like yourselves, like yourself who have been to McKinsey and then have done this other path. But the reality is like, you didn't just get here and show up and every the world is great. It's like, no, you fumbled your way forward. And allowed yourself, the the way to fumble is allowing yourself to fumble. So what did some of those practically look like?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think so many people are scared to look bad as an adult, especially if you've had some success. And I felt that viscerally after I quit my job. What you realize is that when you're employed, especially on a successful path, there is this unwritten like unspoken support for you there's this natural encouragement because you're doing what's expected and you feel as soon as you step away that dissipates and what was really hard for me is there was no active support I had a couple people say encouraging things to me but 99% silent and it was scary. I needed more support. So I went out in search of like finding the other people. And when I quit my job, I didn't have any work lined up. A month in, I'm sort of panicking. I'm like, what was I doing? I'm an idiot. And I, that drove me into overdrive to try. Where were you at? I was in New York City. <laughs> and I didn't even lower my cost of living that much. I did a little, but I was burning money fast. So I freaked out. And this is fumbling, right? You're you realize you can actually take action. If you're running out of cash and you don't want to go broke, you'll make changes. This is the thing people don't realize. You'll stop going to restaurants. You'll start cooking. You'll sublet your place and move to Boston and move in with four other people in their early 20s with one bathroom. That's what I did. And I lowered my cost of living by 50%. I reached out to a crazy amount of people. I found one client. I found money. Sort of proved to myself, okay, you can make this freelance thing work work. And then a couple of my projects were ending at the same time, December, it was about seven months after quitting. And I just decided, what if I stop working? And for that next year, I essentially did one project and made $20,000 for about, it was about 15 months. I did one project that took three months, made about 20, 20 to $25,000. And I just wrote, I wandered, I took a one month trip to Asia. I, but at the same time, I didn't feel that great about myself. I was still in opposition to the default world. I was living in the U.S. before I moved to Asia, about a year and a half after I quit my job. And in the U.S., I still felt this tension of you should be working. You're not productive. You're not making money. You're not a good person. I felt
1: bad about myself. You're playing defense, not offense. Like you're defending, yeah. your. you're kind of like in your head, you're defending, okay, here's why I did this. But in my head, offense is like, you're not even, th- like yeah. I I know this, like I shifted. It was almost like a turnover. I went from playing defense to, I don't even think about that world anymore. Yeah. And I just attack what I'm passionate about and what I'm invested in. So I, I wholeheartedly know that feeling when did that transition for you
0: yeah and i think this is a phase a lot of people need to go through for me it took two years and then realistically four years which is really slow but if you i share
1: all my income <laughs> that's college like people <laughs> that, spend a hundred thousand dollars in four years of their time that's a great point like and that's not that we we say that's long. Because yeah. I've talked about this in the podcast before. Most mm. people would be like, oh, that's so long. But I'd be like, I went to college for five and a half years.
0: Oh, I love that reframe. And this is the thing, right? I went to business school for two years. I paid, I got a scholarship being part of this program, but I went into debt for $70,000. I paid 20 grand out of pocket. So when I graduated, I was 27 and 70 grand in debt. That is a very high status, impressive thing to do. Not work for two years and go to business school and go into debt. Now, what I did- Makes no sense. (laughs) No, it's crazy, right? And I wandered the world for a few years, did a bunch of experiments, learned about myself, challenged myself, dealt with feeling uncomfortable, pushed myself, I became more resilient. I found my wife, we fell in love, we got married. And I more or less broke even in three years. College is pretty fun, but this is better than grad school.
1: There's no, I don't, yeah, I've, I've wised up over the years. Like there's no right or wrong way. Like I, I, whatever, if you're listening to this, like your choices for education is not the issue that I have a problem with. It's this, it's the system and the mindset that's really frustrating to me. And you, you touched on earlier when people comment, what about your education, everything that you paid for? But the reality is I've learned so much more. Like if you, if you took my life and you outlined the 12 years of school in my hometown, then the five years at college and then some corporate life within a six year span of like going on my own, I've learned probably 10 X more than I did before because of what you were talking about earlier, like the culture of creating your own. I created my own culture of what education is and what I love to do. And that's where I think, man, that's what you did where you travel around and you can give yourself two, four, six years to kind of wander. And this is why I, this is why I love my podcast or any podcast because we're getting to people when they can do it. I'm not saying if you're 50 and have three kids like go quit your job. Like that's not what I'm here to do. It's more so to tell people. You'd be
0: surprised at how many of those people email me. Yeah. Every week.
1: It's a tougher problem to solve for sure.
0: The thing I've realized is there's a certain personality type that just has this itch and they never resolve the itch. It never goes away. Right. So it's really just a question of when and how. And when they're reaching out to me, these people are not saying, well, aren't you worried about this? Aren't you worried about that? Those people, honestly, I don't know how to help them. Maybe you're better at that, but I am so passionate about the people that come to me and say, look, here's my situation. I've worked for 25 years. I was talking to somebody that worked 25 years and is looking to remix stuff. Now her kids, his kids are a little older. And he goes, I just need like feedback on my approaches, how I'm thinking about this. And I'm like, that is awesome. I love that. There's way more of that in the past few years. But I always tell people it might be terrible in the short term. <laughs> you might feel really bad. You might struggle. You might feel like a failure. You might not be able to see where you're headed, but it might be worth it.
1: You, the, the archetype that you're describing to me so, sounds like, well, clearly a bit older. They might have kids. They have more life experience, which builds a confidence people our age or younger that have kind of had that itch, they lack true life experience, a lot of them. And then they also lack like the business experience. So it's that like, me. yeah, they I lacked life experience. They, but in business, like you were like, you had McKinsey, like, so there's some people that come to me and it's like, they don't have McKinsey. They have the itch and they don't have the life experience. So that's where it's like, they're just spinning wheels. But I loved your reframe earlier most of them, what they're not willing to do. And in the book, you talk about that as well is just like going more so from the framework of what do you not want to do? And I think not enough people actually think about that. And if they thought about this, here's, you might like this. When I talk about like your job or somebody that has a job, the first thing I talk about is your commute because a lot of people will complain about their commute. And then I'll say the statistic of car accidents and risking your life for that commute. So when you do the framework of like w- weight gain too. Yeah. Weight gain. Anything like you can like statistically be like yeah. across the board. Just go to PubMed and search commute. Are you is that worth now if you can wholeheartedly say, yes, it's worth it right now because the job that I love is something the job yeah, is something sure. I love. Or the second part is like this job gets me to what I love because that's an alternative as well. But yeah, man, I I love this topic so much. And just going through kind of some of the stuff, I think something that I I personally wanted to ask you is what were some of the hard parts when you were outside of the country? Because that is not something I've experienced and I want to kind of live through you vicariously. What were some of the things that created difficulty when you were not in the U.S.?
0: So being out of the U.S. was almost (laughs) categorically great. Um, I love
1: that response.
0: <laughs> it, it, that's when things really opened up for me. And the thing connecting this to, in my book, I write, who do you serve? Right. And this is a big part about building your own culture is figuring out who don't you serve. Right. A lot of people have this mass culture mindset, which is like, if you're going to do something, you got to fit in with everyone. If you're going to say something, you have to reach everyone. People will say to me, don't you think you shouldn't say this about these kind of people? I'm pretty sure there are enough people to reach. Ten thousand people bought my book, which is mind blowing to me. And that could support someone in a year to live. Why did life. why
1: did ten thousand people buy your book?
0: I don't <laughs> I don't I don't know. It's okay. Kinda,
1: you're it, you're not giving yourself enough credit here. You're a sharp ass man. Like I did what if, is, what, if you like, had asked me a year ago,
0: so this is the, what's today? The, the 12th. 12th. I launched it on the 13th last year. I had pre-sold a hundred and then accidentally launched my book on Amazon because I didn't know it just launches on paperback. You can't do a presale. So I just launched it and I said, Oh, screw it. I'll do a two day presale on the Kindle. I sold like 50 of those. So I sold 150 books. If you had told me you'll sell a thousand in the year. That would have been a hundred out of a hundred for me in a victory. I think what I underestimated, and I was sort of feeling this in the pandemic was that the conversation I was talking about before that hidden conversation suddenly wasn't hidden anymore. And it was in public and people were using my book as an excuse to share it with other people. I had so many messages that said I bought five copies for friends, which is essentially the only tactic to grow a book, word of mouth, over time. You can do launch strategy, whatever. Ryan Holiday says this thing around, good launch strategy can get you a few hundred reviews, but only a good book can get you several thousand, right? Uh, So people saw my book as permission to talk about this and share it with people, which I totally underestimated.
1: I'm not letting you get away with this. I asked you about living overseas yeah, yeah. and the struggles. Um, so this, you said it was this, great. So I want to dial into that. But
0: this, this connects back to my writing. Too. And it
1: also c- will connect. I have another question on the, on the book thing, because I feel like what you experience there is going to lead into why the book is doing well.
0: Yeah, so who don't you serve, right? When I was still in the US, I moved, so I moved to Boston a couple of months after quitting my job, spent most of that year in Boston. And then August 2018, about a year and couple months after quitting my job, I decided to go to Taiwan after visiting. I loved Taiwan. I just felt pulled there. And I didn't have a plan. I didn't have any work lined up. When I got there, I didn't end up doing any paid work for about three months, mostly because I couldn't figure out how to do virtual Consulting. People just weren't hiring remote consultants at that point. Got to be in the office. Um, 2018. (laughs) Yeah. And I woke up most days and wandered and I fell in love with writing. That was the thing I kept wanting to do. I I would wake up and be so excited about opening my laptop and just writing. Did you write when you were a kid?
1: I know you not, tinkered with computers really. and stuff.
0: There's a lot on computers. Um there are a couple there are a few moments I can connect the dots. I started writing in college. I wrote a couple things for fun that I just stand out in my mind so powerfully. I had a blog we were screwing around. I had a Tumblr after college. I did a blog for my business school. I wrote on Quora for fun on the side. So it's so obvious looking back, but it wasn't. Until that time and I came up with this mantra then of write most days and that directly led to all this success with the writing but I didn't make any money on writing f- until 2022 which is the really the seventh year I' had been writing consistently I started writing the two of the last years of my job and in Taiwan I read this book by William Zinzer on writing well and he goes, writing is an act of ego. You might as well admit it and let it rip, right? And like just own your personality and what you actually believe. And it was this unlock for me. It's like, oh, I should say what I actually think, <laughs> right? And it was this huge release where it's like, and living in Taiwan helped with this because the I don't know the default soup of what I'm supposed to do, the culture there. I didn't grow up there, but walking around in Boston, I know everyone thinks how everyone you, what you're seen is successful, all these things, all that fell away. There was a lightness living in Taiwan. I was an outsider and I was, that freed me a little. So I was like, yeah, just say what I think. And there was a looseness and just like a reconnection with myself and I don't think it's a surprise that a month into that is when I also ended up meeting my now wife who I'm having a child with. Where'd you meet her? We met on Tinder. We had a first date at a tea shop and we just had this. It Wandering. Was, yeah. It was amazing from the beginning. And the funny thing was she saw all these like credentials on my Tinder profile because it links to your job and school, right? And she goes, I, I'll go, but this guy's just gonna be another like expat douchebag. And she was thinking of quitting her job. And she's like, Yeah, yeah, I just want to quit my job and read all day. I'm like, Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) And her—that's amazing. The first few weeks were her skipping work, and we're just wandering around, going on bike rides, reading in the park, going to all these cool things around Taiwan. And meeting her was just so powerful because it was permission she she liked who I was showing up with and the funny thing is she didn't really know how I was telling her I'm kind of struggling don't know who I am I'm trying to figure out all these things I don't really know what the future looks like she didn't care she kind of like saw me and that has been the ultimate superpower my entire relationship she's still so supportive if I went and like took a job and didn't try harder at my current path, she'd probably fight me. <laughs> and it's just so powerful to have. I'd love that to see support. that. What is she
1: like? How many weeks pregnant now? <laughs> she probably
0: she probably beat me up. <laughs> she just Capo capoeira and yeah, dude. Um,
1: she she came to
0: the New Year's Day workout. I, I loved yeah, it. She she was the toughest one, at the Well, her and Aaron both. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, yeah. It's I. We'll never know. We'll never know (laughs) uh, experience, what that's like uh, in this lifetime, but it is, it is very inspiring and and motivational. And, uh, I love that how supportive she is of your path. I can, I can testify to how much that means. Um, I wouldn't be, none of what I do would exist without Aaron. And I think that doesn't, as men, that doesn't get talked as, as much either. Um, which is an interesting thread to to go down. I think naturally it's getting talked about a little bit more. Again, a lot of the things we're talking about when you're talking about jobs and relationships, like cultural norms take kind of decades to change. And that's where with work, what I've seen is during the pandemic, it forced a lot of people, and this is my hypothesis of why your book would take off is that pandemic gave people the pause that they needed to ask themselves the questions that you and I were already asking. Right. We had the itch during the pandemic. I think people who didn't even have an itch started getting the free time to like come out of the fog and start asking themselves questions. And that's where, so
0: before we jump into that, I saw this, I had the craziest experience having written about this. And this is why I kind of knew the book would resonate. I'd been writing about these things from 2017 to 2020. April 2020, I had these booking links on my site. Anyone could book a call with me every Wednesday. I didn't really have a following. I had less than a couple thousand people on all different platforms. And I'd get one a month, maybe one, maybe a few a month. And then eight calls every week.
1: (laughs) It was crazy. So you went from one per month to eight times four. Yeah, it was like 20 to 30 a month. People people were
0: messaging me. They're finding my stuff. They're reading all my articles. And 2020 was an explosion for me. I'm talking to all these people, so I'm getting all the info ahead of everyone else. The news media is always nonsense on work. They're talking about a great resignation. There's no great resignation. There's weird stuff happening in the labor market, but what's happening is a great contemplation. There's a sort of bubbling under the surface that hasn't even shown its wings yet. People are starting to make moves from the questions they started asking two years ago. Those are the interesting things. That's the real great resignation that's going to like occur over the next decade. Um, But it's slow, right? You get those questions and you start thinking and it bubbles over time. And I was able to just absorb and sort of just be a vehicle and a node for these topics and these information, these information. And I think what resonates too is I'm not a very hustle person. I'm default skeptical of hustle culture because far too many people quit their jobs and then just become workaholics working on their own, maxing on income and things like that. I ultimately think that's the path to burnout. The only path to sustainability on your own path is designing around work that actually brings you alive. And finding that is not trivial, hard, but it is possible. Many people have talked about it through history and it is worth
1: finding. How does somebody find work that makes them feel alive when they don't even know what it feels like to feel alive in the first place?
0: I don't know. It's a damn hard question, but that was me and I was willing to fumble in the darkness. I didn't know that what... That was what I'm aiming for. The biggest hack I've ever seen is one is travel, not a vacation, not going to a place for a week and going to hyper-scheduled vacation, travel, and just exist in a different environment. Chronic illness, pretty effective. That worked for me. I was sick for a couple of years after grad school, and that opened um, my windows a little more. I don't suggest getting chronic illness to have an awakening, but sabbaticals are probably the quickest way to transform your relationship with the work minimum
1: three months. So that's a good transition where I asked, like, how do you, how does somebody find work that makes them feel alive if they don't know what that feels like in the first place? Suffering, knowing what it's like to feel so bad that almost death seems like a better alternative. That's something that unfortunately I've experienced and that lit a fire under my ass. I knew, because you're willing to fight
0: for a day of feeling great, right? Mm-hmm. And then once you experience that physically, you want it emotionally. You don't to, want to go back.
1: No. So one of the things that I've asked multiple guests before mm-hmm. on this show is, can somebody get to that point without suffering or is suffering needed? Do we have to suffer to get to that point of whether it's work making me feel alive or my relationship making me feel alive? Like, is there is there some sort of suffering that has to happen? What's your what's your view on that?
0: I think suffering, suffering is a tough word because it can mean a lot to a lot of people. I think there's a whole tribe of sufferists in the world, <laughs> which are sort you probably see this in the fitness world, right? Yeah, you got to grind, right? And people are getting smarter with this, right? Like you were somebody that motivated me to get like a whoop watch. And if you work out too hard, it says, okay, take it easier this day and you'll actually... Uh, succeed in your fitness goals over the long term and probably more quickly, right? And a lot of people pair work with suffering and they don't realize they have this hidden script and when they become self-employed, they they make it a struggle again and they're suffering, right? I always start with what if it were easy? So that doesn't directly answer the question. I don't think suffering is inherently needed get to a better relationship with work or a better place in your life. I think challenge challenges and having to overcome things and figure things out inevitably come in everyone's
1: life. I liked your initial, I mean, I liked the full response, but your initial remark of it means something different to everybody. Yeah. And that's where I, I kind of fall in that same boat where like, to me, we've, grown up in a world where work means suffering, like, right. But we live in a reality where it we're blessed with technologies and creative endeavors that 50 years ago you didn't have. So work doesn't have to be a suffer fest, like kind of like what you were (laughs) describing. Like
0: there's a legacy of an attachment to that. Right. So the thing I'm careful to point out is the boomer generation even had less options for work. Mm -hmm. My father didn't graduate from college. He went to work at a manufacturing plant. There was a certain
1: amount of grind that he, he didn't have a choice, but because he didn't have a choice, quote unquote, like there, yeah, like it just physically, there was no remote work. Right. So was it viewed as suffering then, or was it just viewed as like, this is just every day?
0: Right. Cause everyone else is doing it. Right. So there's a cultural And you see this in the knowledge work world too, professional worlds where people sort of like compare. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. (laughs) Like there's this shared like cohesion around normalizing it. Right. And I just don't think the suffering of working hard in a field to like get the food for your agricultural output. If you're working on a farm a hundred years ago is the same as struggling on the dumbest stuff on PowerPoint slides for insecure grown men for like a client presentation. We just need to get serious about this. Some of this stuff doesn't matter, right? And suffering on the things that don't matter to you, you have to figure out what matters to you, is not something worth doing. There's all this cynicism from older generations. Back in my day, we struggled, right? We had to put in the work. Okay, but... I don't want my kids to suffer on dumb stuff if they don't have to. Like the thing in the beginning of my book, it's saying my parents figured it out. They gave us a great life. They did sacrifice. They did suffer within the context of their environment, but they gave me more space to dream than they did, right? But they were still a little bit uncomfortable with me stepping into those dreams. To me, when I interpret
1: your, you, your brand, the book and like suffering, the greatest amount of suffering is going down the path that isn't yours. Yeah. Because you're talking decades of time where it's not, and it's silent suffering. Like that's where going back to the definition of it could mean multiple things to different people. To me, that's what that means. I suffer like if we're going to break it down, we were talking about fitness, right? there's a lot of things that I do that people on the outside, it looks like suffering. Like it's hard, but it doesn't even come close to having to show up to the job that I used to have (laughs) to show up to or that commute and going back to the disease, like an an illness. I had gastro problems. I have celiac disease and I was anxious every day driving to work. Like, Oh, I'm going to have to pull over and go use the restroom. And then I'm going to a job that isn't fulfilling. But to other people, it's like, Oh, well, you're driving a Lexus. You're in air condition. Like you have money. Like that's not suffering. But I, in my head, I was like, I'd rather go back to sleeping on a couch in college with $0 and like trying to solve problems that I'm actually passionate about doing. So I I love how you kind of dialed that, dialed that in because anybody listening on the other end of this, you can attach yourself to whatever suffering is for you. And also I think the beauty of that is it can be a positive or a negative. And that's not something that we're taught. We're not, we're not taught. You mentioned the word challenge to do things that are challenging without a result attached to it. We're taught go to MIT because the result will be good. Good. People will think of you in a certain way. But if you were like, I want to learn how to climb a mountain. I want to go climb a mountain. What's the material result of that? Yeah. Why do you want to do that? Or you're gonna like take a month to go quit your job to go do that. Why? Or write consistently
0: for seven years without trying to get published or
1: the writing paid thing for it is is really interesting because for me it's been like media overall. On top of the the personal training, it was you're quitting your job to like make posts on these different platforms.
0: Well, this is why I never dunk on anyone actually putting themselves out there in an authentic way, because when people first start doing it, they look silly. Your stuff is bad, but that's the hardest part. And when you share, you inspire others, you connect with others, you give other people permission to do great things, right? And the path to great work is through ugly work and... That's why people look at people creating online and say, ah, oh, there's too many scammers, all grif- grifters. It's like, well, that's exactly why you should share online because you're already defended against that. You're not going to be grifty or scammy or hustly. You probably have something worth saying. And yeah, it's it's amazing. I'm glad people like you exist. It's easier to find people like you. The whole reason I'm in Austin, I had some soft connections is that I had internet friends here who were alive and energized. And How'd like, you
1: find Squatch?
0: Alex Hardy. <laughs> he's my on ramp to Austin. And he's on a sabbatical right now. He's uh he went to Costa Rica after leaving his job. I'm pumped for him. He's somebody that's been super thoughtful about his path and really has this deep desire to like bring a lot alive. So
1: do you know how Squatch started? Jason, right? And his coffee shop or? Yeah. So it's kind of a culmination of the pathless path. <laughs> I love it. Um, which is attracting the pathless path, pathless Paul. Yeah. Um, I feels so at home there. Yeah. So total sidebar, but it applies during the pandemic. Obviously like the world is kind of flipping on its head. Oh, because of Noah, you mean? No, no, no. Um, Noah didn't even, Noah wasn't in Austin either. He got called just like you did. Um, yeah. but Jason, owner of Buzzmill was having people over his house to work out. Uh, he created a group because he wanted to just, obviously like we're all trying to find connection during that time. And, uh, his wife didn't like after <laughs> a while that <laughs> so many sense. people were coming over to work out. So he's like, oh, I'm like, I'm going to start. I think there was another, there was a Squatch before Squatch. There was a different facility that was for him and some of the workers at the buzz mill could be getting this wrong, but that's through the grapevine. But then Jason found the warehouse and there was like, there was no turf. There was no sauna. There was nothing. It was literally just that warehouse and like a skeleton of a gym. And the number one thing that Jason did, and this is again, going back to if you're considering finding a new path or have an itch, like we were describing, like reach out to Paul, reach out to myself and lean on other people that have already done it. Jason was like, I've never Run a gym or open a gym. I know business. I own this other spot. But what he allowed for is people to come in and make it their own. So, like, we created our own culture there because it was basically a bunch of misfits who didn't really align with everywhere else. Like, for me, the attraction was I get to work out in the sun with my shoes off and my shirt off and talk to people and actually grow my mind and my body at the same time. And it just naturally attracted that. And then obviously if those are the type of people attracted in the beginning, it just spreads like wildfire. Like one of our sayings is like, we want to increase collisions of like trailblazers. I love that. So we want to increase the amount of collisions of Paul running into somebody that he's going to really vibe with. And then Paul bringing somebody else in that they're going to vibe with and, and so on and so forth.
0: It's amazing. I've never felt at home in a gym. I'm I'm not like a gym guy. I don't like hanging out at the gym, but I'm drawn to that place. And I just feel like it's a place I'm supposed to be going. I can't explain it, but I, yeah, I love that. It's cool to hear that. I thought it started many years before, so it's cool to hear it's very recent.
1: No, it was, it was kind of out of a rebellion. It started out of a little bit of a, a rebellion of like, this is what health is. This is what we really think that health yeah. should look like.
0: And this is a big thing, too, is not being against things. So being against things can be a good starting point, right? So you're against not being able to work out or things like that. You're against working in the corporate world. That's where I started. Eventually, what I realized is that I needed to be for things. So this brings me back to Taiwan. I took a consulting project paying $7,500 that would more or less pay my bills for four months four or five months living in Taiwan. It was very cheap. But I just had so much resistance. I had this gut feeling I shouldn't do it. And as soon as I took the project, I was like, I don't want to do another project like this. It was kind of a project I could crush. I'm good at it. I know how to do it. But it's that's why I left the corporate world. And it lit a fire in me. I realized I didn't want to play accountant of my life anymore. I didn't want to micromanage costs because that was a scarcity mindset, Paul. And that is when things shifted for me to this abundance mindset. I want to be for things. I want to aim at things. I want to put be bolder out there. And a bunch of people emailed me when I started unleashing this, something new in your writing. I sense it, can't quite pinpoint it. And that was really encouraging. That kept me going for a couple of years. And yeah, just kept slowly, stubbornly working on only the things I liked. And was so protective of that. And I just kept that going. Now, the thing I always tell people is, I don't know if you can make a living following that approach,
1: but why not try for a few years? <laughs> the key word there is what's a living? Like some people are living is yeah. 20,000. Well,
0: I just talked yeah. to a woman this morning, Michelle Varhus, who's written a lot about sabbaticals. And she's living in the U.S. right now. She spent $12,000 last year.
1: It, wow. It, yeah. That's impressive.
0: And there's many such cases. I meet these people because they find me and they reach out to me and they're willing to a thousand a month. Yeah. She's she's living in the middle of nowhere in California and living with her sister. Doesn't eat out. Doesn't she did take one trip to Hawaii. I think she had some points. But yeah, it's possible. Yeah. I, I met think a woman that traveled continuously around the globe for $14,000. Another person I interviewed on my podcast.
1: I really like your framework of for not against because like I, I wouldn't be for that. I'm more of the, how do I make a lot and experience a lot and not have to even think about yeah. expenses. But that, for other people giving if, when you think of the four mindset, the possibilities out there for people are really what matter. And when we talk against things, it, limits the possibilities that they're, that we can see.
0: Yeah. And for some people, money is a very emotional thing, right? Money can have different purposes for different people. I am not super motivated to make the most amount of money as possible. I'm willing to turn down opportunities to like optimize for energy. And I still didn't increase my salary after turning down that consulting project. My income dipped even further and I was still micromanaging my expenses. But at the edges, I wasn't trying to save $5 here and there. I was loosening up a little and loosening up into myself, dreaming a little more, imagining things, what could be, what what might be possible, but it was still super cheap about money because I was willing to pay that cost to protect the space and time needed to cultivate creative acts, which was, I just had this sense that I needed to keep writing. I didn't know why. It, I just follow obsession. I just had it's curiosity. You, it curiosity chooses you and you don't really have a choice. Right. And once that happens, I just want to follow that slipstream as long as possible.
1: Tell me a little bit about the gift economy.
0: Yeah. So, and this is a big unlock for me as well. And just toying with all these experiments, part of what attracted me to the gift economy was a rejection of the corporate world, which is just maximize profit, optimize more, more, more. The default is more, more money, more profit. The reality is you don't need to maximize revenue or profit as a business. There's no law. There's no rule law of the universe that makes you do this. People just default to that, right? There are businesses that don't optimize for those and still do great. Now, I just wanted to reject against like charging for stuff. And I just wanted to give to people. I've always been somebody that just wants to help and give and support people. So I just embraced this idea of the gift economy. I read about it in Charles Eisenstein's book, The Sacred Economics, right? And the gift in our families, you don't charge people. If you have friends over, you don't say, all right, thank you for coming over for dinner. (laughs) Twenty seven dollars for you, thirty-four dollars for you. I mean
1: did you live with roommates in college? Because we definitely did that. No, I'm just kidding. Sometimes we did that.
0: Yeah, eventually when you're you're super poor, you gotta count you gotta (laughs) count
1: the bills, right? You you, You, this is my egg and like (laughs) your ramen. Yeah, that definitely happens, right? Sorry, I was just (laughs) it was just making fun.
0: No, it's, it's true. And sometimes when people do that, they can destroy a friendship yep. because they've severed an understanding of a deeper game you were playing, right? A deeper game of we're in this to, for the long haul. That's, that's why my, my cousin, I think I quote him in the book, it'll even out when we're dead. Love mm-hmm. that. It's like why the hell are we keeping track of $4 here and $7 there. Right. And so the gift economy is says, give first, don't expect anything back. You are giving wholeheartedly and just giving and just trying to send love with that message, whether it's money, whether it's gifts, whether it's time. A lot of people do this with their time and that's beautiful. I did it with a couple of projects. I somebody wanted to pay me $1000 to write this future of work report. I was I didn't really have any opportunities, so I said yes to it, but I said will you experiment with this gift economy with me? I just thought $1,000 was like super shitty low pay for what was probably going to be a large amount of work. It was going to come down to, I don't know, $5 to $10 an hour for (laughs) work. So I said, we do this gift economy with thing where I just give it to you. At the end, I send you a a form and just say, what did it feel like to work with Paul? What are you you willing to give wholeheartedly? And they ended up giving me $2,000, right? And the interesting thing is, not that exchange. It's the feelings. It's like, you have all these feelings. I'm going to get ripped off. What if they take advantage of me? What if they pay me less? And realizing we're, we're, especially in the US, we're these trained consumers that are protecting ourselves. You can't charge me this for that. I'm going to get ripped off. Don't get taken advantage of. We have all these scripts, right? And just releasing them. And I talk about giving a hundred dollars to a stranger I met on couch surfing. Cause she said she was broke and she, she took it, she accepted it. And it felt so good. It's amazing. I've never talked to her again, but she emailed me a few weeks later and she's like, I use your money to apply for this home sharing thing. And I have this three, three months free house stay. I have no idea what she's up to, but it's like, that's cool. Hopefully she spread it on and just like lean. We don't need to turn everything into a transaction.
1: Right. Do anyone in your family watch the news?
0: Oh, of course.
1: Many are addicted. (laughs) Facts. (laughs) So the reason I bring the news up is what you're talking about is leaving a positive ripple. Yeah. And The news does not do that. Yes, but the people that watch the news sit there and complain because they want a better world when the reality is, I'm tying this concept back to the beginning of when you first open up a little bit, is you can take action. Yeah. You don't need permission. So the permission to give isn't it crazy that we have these things in our heads that tell us that we shouldn't give?
0: Yeah.
1: That there's all these reasons not to give. So for me when I analyze that, it's because of we have all these people that complain about the world, about how the world is operating. And then They're sitting there waiting for that screen to give them permission to say, okay, I can give. And insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So they sit there in front of the screen and the screen can look a million different ways. It can be your teachers, your books, the people you hang around, the information that you're getting could be a million different ways. Like if you want something different out of life, you have to do something differently. And that's where, when you were talking about the gifting economy, it really hit home with me because- for me, like, I think that's been a huge struggle of mine to describe to other people, because even in.
0: You're very good at this. You're an
1: incredibly generous person. And I, I like to think, I appreciate that. I would say that it stems from, i analyze and reflect a lot. And I was given a life that, I mean, we're super middle-class, but both my parents were there. Yeah. They're, they're still together today. And there was a lot of love and a lot of, hard times, but they also did a really good job of showing me what life could have been. We lived in a diverse town and like, I could see and feel what real stress was like. And that's where I also knew other people that were above us. I would say, I don't, I don't like that word because I don't think anybody's above or below, but, um, when you're younger and you're like sifting out your friend groups, you can just tell that some people have are a little bit more well off yeah. and others aren't. Right. So what ended up happening was I viewed it as the ripple effect since I was young. That's why I have literally the ripple tattoo on my hand is people would give to me. I'd reflect and be like, Oh, that was like really kind to of them. Like, what can I do? And the framework that I've used over the years, it applies to the corporate world. It applies to school because I've heard so many people like I'm not valuable. And this applies to like when you quit too. I have no skills or I don't know how to be valuable to other people. And when I was younger, it stemmed from I would tutor kids. One of my entrances into entrepreneurship was I would tutor younger kids. So I, was, I wasn't I was valuable to my peers or the people above me, but I could tutor someone younger. So if you're listening to this and you're in college, you can be valuable to a high school. If you're a young professional, like if you your first year, Paul at McKinsey, like you can help somebody... That's applying to McKinsey. Yeah. Why do we not talk about that as being valuable though? Like I feel like I, I have a lot of friends that intrinsically do that, but I don't, it's not talked about like in schools or in jobs about how to be intrinsically giving and that value right there, I think is the ultimate value that leads to the monetary value and the real currency that we see in, in the world.
0: Yeah, money is powerful and it transforms our thoughts about what is possible. And most of us are dumbing down our decisions for what is worth doing and how we should spend our time through money. Money has transformed our concept of time and what we should do far more than people imagine. Don't waste your time. Are you spending your time wisely? It's everywhere. You can't avoid it. Money is interlinked with time right? And this happened with the industrial economy. We just underestimate how much it is. And this is why generosity is not sending money to the charity that is approved by your corporation every year. Generosity is a practice. And this (sighs) was my biggest unlock is it's a skill to practice. And it becomes easier over time, but it's always uncomfortable because the default culture tells you, you should do this in certain ways. I was trying to give money through a charity to underprivileged families where they were donating a bunch of school stuff. I said, can we just give them cash and let them judge? You can't do that. What if they spend it on drugs, somebody said to me, right? These are just scripts in people's head. Now, if they met that family, they probably wouldn't think that way. But these are just scripts in people's way. There's a right way to give to the proper charities. And it's all this institutional framing of how we channel money. Money goes through proper marketed charities for the proper causes, but you can't give a hundred dollars to a stranger. I just bumped up my podcast producer's pay preemptively. He's been doing a great job. And I said, he's made my life easier and he's helped me imagine new possibilities. I feel like my podcast is going to take off. I don't know. I'm going to boost his salary and ask if he wants to do some bolder things. So I boost his salary. I increased it. Uh, I almost doubled it like per episode. Um, And he said, oh, wow, this is far more than I would expect. This is going to like make me rich (laughs) where he lives. And I still felt, oh, I'm a sucker. I shouldn't have gone as high as I did. Right. I still have that. But it's the awareness of working through that and say, okay, just keep going. This is great. This is like a practice it's, and this is five years after those initial experiments. I'm always looking for where can I practice this? I met somebody this past summer. They have a book. I said, Oh, do you have any extra copies? They said, Oh, you can buy it online. I don't give away my book for free. I think every author should be paid. And I'm like, I don't know. I give my book away like every week I leave it in the small book things around Austin for fun. I just keep ordering them, putting them around and I got a message last week. Somebody found mine in Seattle somewhere where I put a book in a small lending library. I gifted, I don't know, 700 books this past year. And that's probably part of what's helped it unleash itself too. It's like, I just don't think that getting paid for things, is that's not a starting assumption for anything.
1: Especially when you're trying to go from the world that you were in to the world that you're in now. And- that is hard, so hard to explain to people. And that's why I love this conversation. And I kind of want to pivot here as we start getting close to wrapping up into when you're not writing or not talking about your obsession, which is either you yourself and your experiences of going on this path or helping others on their path, what are some of your other hobbies or obsessions or, or things that you're doing? So
0: how I think about time, a lot of my non-work experiments really sort of loosened me up. I don't have this anxiety that I need to do things or be productive. If I don't work for a week at a time, it's fine. I have this saying I come back to, there's nothing to be done. It's sort of this Buddhist, like Taoist sort of wisdom. There's nothing to be done. Right? And I have enough trust that there's enough things I like doing and know how to do that I'll probably make money. And I've succeeded in beyond my wildest dreams in the past year as well. But my starting assumption with the day is just to wake up and let my sort of intuition call me. Now, sometimes I have stuff scheduled like this, which I agree to, but most of my days are open and flexible. But I usually start my day with just writing and see where that takes me. My curiosity takes me in so many directions. I waste enormous amounts of time (laughs) if the goal was to monetize my time, but it's not. And I found that a lot of my writing happens followed by leisure. Leisure is an active form of contemplation. Leisure as me going to the gym in the afternoons and really connecting with my body and doing things around that. So some of my hobbies are shifting now to like acquiring baby equipment and learning about how to be a father.
1: I can attest to that.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I, I, one of my favorite things to do is leisure and wandering bike rides, long walks, uh slow experience of time. And I think having a kid will just be another thing I can do with that. And it, I've realized in 2022, somebody said, you got to celebrate yourself. And I struggled with celebration, but I finally realized for me, contemplating, reflecting, taking a slow day here and there is my form of celebration. It's saying I am alive. All these silly games we're involved in aren't what matter. And just come back to yourself, come back to, it's all about love. It's all about doing your best, helping people like really simple things. And yeah, that's my way to celebrate life. And sometimes I do it with friends. Sometimes I do it by myself.
1: I love that response. And I want to give you credit for your book. I think it flowed really well. I feel like you intertwined a lot of key quotes and concepts into it that really kept me intrigued. And and one of them the concept was one of the most, cause you were talking about time and, and waste. If you're listening to this, Paul, like quote, like <laughs> use the quote fingers of wasted time. Right. When you said that, I thought of one of the most valuable ways to spend your time is to believe in people quote. Love that. And oh, I are think you quoting if, me. it's from the book. I just said, I, I love that uh, to my own quote. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who, I don't know who wrote that. I think yeah, it was yeah. from someone. I, um, one of
0: the most worthwhile things in the world is, Courageously, or I forget what it is. I can yeah, pull it out. Is if to, you want to be. yeah,
1: is to believe in people. And um, when we we're talking about giving and the giving economy, a lot of the topics, like I said, I wanted to give you credit for flowing them together because they all come together in a combination to really convey your message. And when we were talking about giving and something that Thrive has strived to do, and me personally for for years and even my whole life is giving people the belief that they can do something. And that's where who in your life, outside of your wife, has been that person for you? Who has been the person that believed in you?
0: Yeah, so I think this was a hard thing for me after coming on this path because I sort of wished I had more active support From my family, I think a lot of my courage does come from my mother who is just always sort of kind of oppositional to not having a job, though she's better with it now. It's grown on her, but she's always just been there for me. It's this deep trust that she'd support me no matter what. And that is really powerful. She was such a supportive and nurturing parent, always just removing roadblocks for me, making life easy for me in the hopes that I would like go thrive and make a lot of money in the corporate world. But (laughs) that is what enabled me to go do my own thing because it gave me a firm foundation and belief in myself and feeling of safety. Right. So definitely her, I think on my creative path, there are some random people that have I was just, hoping you were going to say that. That have just become hyper fans. Not even fans, just they're people I couldn't ever possibly pay back. My friend Jordan has just been hyper enthusiastic. He works in a big company. He doesn't care. He doesn't get offended by what I write. He just wants to root me on all the time. He's replied to, I don't know, 50 emails. My Aunt Debbie too, which... I later found out has gone through a bunch of random paths in her life. From the beginning, she was emailing me after every issue. And another guy, Noel, he's a guy I met. I was interviewing for a job before I decided to quit. And he just, from the beginning, he was my first paid supporter on my Patreon for my newsletter in 2018. I was making, I don't know, 30 bucks a month from that. First one, instant. He always signs up instantly, sends me emails, supports me. And man, that's all you need. You have three to five people in your corner, you're good. And this is one of the biggest reasons to write, share, create, put your dreams out there in the world because somebody will be willing to root you on. The hard thing is people struggle with is they don't have active fans or supporters in their life. And you don't realize until you put yourself out there that nobody's actively encouraging you. Everyone's sort of stuck or doesn't have enough of their own stuff figured out to think about other people. And that's fine. A lot of people have struggles and I empathize with that, but you
1: need to find the supporters. I love how you respond to that because especially with your, your mother, we don't realize that sometimes our biggest supporters don't necessarily believe in our ideas. They believe in us. Yeah. And, and, that is powerful. It's pivotal. I don't
0: need my mom to want to follow her own self-employed path and become an internet creator. I just need her love. And it took me a long time to realize that I should just share how I feel to her, not tell her my beliefs. Ah, I think I see the futures like this and the internet's growing. doesn't matter. I don't need to con- I don't need to convert her. She's already on board to Team Paul. Right. And I think too many times we get into these conflicts because we want to convert people to our beliefs. Beliefs are personally useful. Beliefs drive action. I believe I am a healthy person. Therefore, I will act as a healthy person. You don't need to convert people.
1: This is just an illusion of mass culture again. We're just following the screen, the news. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. You're hundred percent right. And I love how you just name dropped some people there. Like some of my friends, like I've literally shout out to Jeff. I've gotten Venmo notifications.
0: I've gotten this, a guy, <laughs> a guy, Mike, Michael Reed in Boston has done this for me. Yeah. Randomly. Sent me, sent me money
1: and it was like, go spend it, go do this oh, because that's... he'll, he'll read, he's from day one has read my stuff and, and, and watched it and shared it. And, um, we both help each other in, in a lot of different ways.
0: It's amazing. Do this for other people. If you're listening and you've never done this for people, find somebody that's doing something brave and you know they're vulnerable. Send them ten dollars on Venmo and tell them to keep going. You have no idea how that feels. I've got I've been on the receiving end of that and it felt like a million dollars. The gratitude. And I gave a hundred dollars to that random stranger. This is the crazy thing. I don't know if I put this part in my book. A few months later, one of my friends sent me $100 unprompted. And I asked her, I said, why did you send me that? She just said, it seems like you're on to something interesting. Keep going. It was the same dollar amount. It was so weird. These things flow and you have enough of these things happen. You start to, I'm not a woo person, but like the world is crazy
1: and the crazier part is I have a very similar story. So, uh, you know, Ross, man, um, he helped me out one day, uh, moving shit from my storage to the house and he didn't have to do this. I paid him, but sent him a a lump sum in Venmo. And I was just like, I feel like this is a good amount. And then some for his time and, and efforts. And little did I know that like a day later, my buddies from ice barrel were in town and I ended up helping them out with this event and it's an event that like I literally showed up because I wanted to do the work for free. Like I love what I do. And then they were like, send us your Venmo information. And when they sent me money, it was like more than what I had given to Ross. And I had no idea that that was even going to happen. And it was just because of out of the blue, someone we exchanged value, but it's still one of those things where there's no in your head. You're just like, Oh, like I could have done this or I could have done that. But just like you said earlier, like that's, that's just an innate thing in us, but what we can never, and I like your four mindset and the attack mindset of believing in that next day happening. And even if it's six months down the line or a year down the line, again, it's something that we're not, we're not taught. But if you, I think, listen to podcasts like this, this is where I, I love education is training people to see that because some people don't even connect that dot like it happens for them, but they don't connect a dot and like really let it feel like they don't feel it. And another thing that I want to convey to people. So Paul challenged you with sending the $10 to someone you believe in or whatever dollar amount, something that has changed my life and I've helped with other people. And I was reminded of this yesterday because it was my birthday and people were sending me video messages, something so simple is like throughout my day, if I receive a video message from a friend I haven't seen in a while. You always listen to those. You always listen and just seeing their smiling face will change your day. Like it's so much different than a text. So if you have a friend that's like, I have a lot of friends that still live on the East Coast or not near Austin. So every once in a while, I just send video messages and they'll do the same thing back randomly out of the blue. And it always makes my day.
0: I'm going to take this one too. That's and it makes,
1: a, honestly, yeah. like it makes me feel just as good as that 10, like it's the same thing. And that going back to the concept that it doesn't have to be a monetary thing, like there's things that we can do with the giving economy that really just every day you could be doing in your life. But I just wanted to say thank you again for showing up here today, uh, spending some time. It was, it was awesome to kind of like pick your brain on some of the the concepts that you have in your book. Last thing that I always want to do when I'm, have guests on the podcast is I want people to connect with you. That's that's really why I do this is to connect like minded individuals. And two things. What is the best thing that somebody could do for you right now? And then how can they, if they really want to get in contact with you and connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Twitter is probably one of the best. P underscore millard and my newsletter, follow those, reply. I always reply to people. I love engaging in that conversation. I love it. Best way to support, I guess, would be to buy the book. If you don't want to buy it, I will gift the book to anyone who asks, no reasons needed to get. And I've been doing that since I launched it. So yeah, if you want the book, buy it or I'll give it to you.
1: That's an amazing way to go about it. Last question I always ask everybody is, what does the word thriving mean to you? If you were to define thriving, how would you do that? Yeah. So
0: I'm going to, I'm (laughs) going to open up the book. You highlighted this. I know. (laughs) Helping people live courageously so that they can thrive is one of the most important things in the world. I want to see people live the lives they are capable of, not just the ones they think they're allowed to live. I think that's what it's all about. And I love that you've uh, honed in on this world too. I'm excited to see uh, thrive the book one
1: day too when we hop off this podcast, one of the main questions I have for you is if you were to be in my shoes, like what path would you go down to in terms of writing a book? I love writing as well. One of the struggles I've just had is like putting some structure behind it. You unlocked a lot for me. Like when I, again, going back to your flow, simply written. I love that. I'm a key. I I thrive off simplicity. You can see in this room, like it's, just like white and
0: it's kind of written for an industrial engineer. So
1: yeah, I could tell. I was just like, this is like great. Like he hits on points and then he backs it up and then just constantly flowing like that. So if you have the opportunity, please uh, support Paul. Where should they buy the book at? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Okay. Um, whatever's easiest for people. Yeah. Go support him. Amazon's easy. Paul Millard. Uh, I would love if you would do that. I can't vouch for for you and the book enough. Um, it was amazing to, to get to sit here and talk with you today. And at the end of every podcast, I kind of articulate what my biggest takeaway is. And for me, it was the whole like four versus against. I think it's especially in today's world where you have social media and such polarization. I don't feel like the against mindset does anything for anybody it's boring it's easy
0: it's easy to be against something the only qualification is you're against it that's it you have nothing else in common being for things you find people that are aligned with your values
1: and you have to do more to be for something like yeah you have to put effort
0: being against requires no work I'm against you just object for no reason I'm against the color green I'm I'm in I'm in the club
1: anti greens (laughs) I love it we're gonna end there anti-greens this is cj finley with the thrive on life podcast the best thing that you can do for this show is if you liked paul's episode please share it with somebody else give it that five star rating and review and i look forward to having you listen to our next episode again this is cj finley with the thrive on life podcast thrive on y'all